Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write, the podcast about writing amongst life's many other demands. I'm Penny Winter, author and book coach. Today, I'm speaking with novelist Kate Sawyer. Kate's debut novel, The Stranding, came out in 2021 and was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award. In this conversation, Kate and I take a deep dive into her second novel, This Family, which was published in May. Kate's background is in acting and producing for theatre and short film, and we talk about how these have heavily influenced her as a novelist, as well as her choice to become a solo mother and how that influenced and changed her work as a writer. Kate is also the host of the wonderful podcast, Novel Experience, so do check that out if you haven't already. If you are a fan of Not Too Busy to Write, then I am sure you will love this one as well. All of the links are in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me, Penny. You know, it's one of those things when you do a podcast that is in a similar realm that you become very aware, don't you, of the <laughs> other um, podcasts that are out there. And I've wanted to make contact with you. So I'm so pleased that well, you beat me to it. But thank well, you. I- I love chatting to other podcasters. I've talked to a few. Um, I've got actually got another one coming up, the same series as well. I just realized that then. But there, um, there's so much. I mean, I am a massive fan of writing podcasts in general, and I feel like there's just so much to unpack in terms of writing careers, um, both yeah. in craft in and in the business and so many different things. So it's always so exciting to talk to another podcaster about this. But let's start with your work. Um, this family <laughs> came out earlier this year. It's your second novel. You're, I would, I've had a six month break from recording for the podcast because I was, you know, desperately trying to finish book. And one of the advantages is that I'm speaking to a few people a number of months after their books have come out. And so that's in itself a nice little thing. I get to talk to people about the process of bringing out their books. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is your your debut was very 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 well critically reviewed um it, it was also a slightly different genre and i wanted to talk to you about what that process of of publishing your second book firstly after the first one had had been received so well and what that felt like in terms of pressures and things but also that sort of slight sidestep in genre um which i'd love to hear a little bit more about of like what perhaps expectations there were for you coming into the second novel yeah, so I think in many ways I was really lucky. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm really lucky. But um, it, particularly with regard to like sort of that gear change that didn't really feel like a gear change for me. Um, there wasn't, the, I had pitched something to the publishers at the very early, you know, before I even met an editor or whatever via my agent. Do I have another book, you know, or? Or am I just looking to sell this one book? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I've got these various ideas. And it was in a maybe a five-minute phone call with my agent where she was getting back to someone. Um, she said, have you got another idea that we could pitch? You know, it doesn't necessarily, it won't necessarily have to be that book, but it would be good if it was sort of in a roundabout area of what you want to write. And I just said, well, I have this idea of like a family where the sisters don't get on with each other. Um, I've written a few like scenes of ideas. I, I'd actually written a little bit of a play. Um, and I, yeah, I said that, I, I, I don't know. And she said, what's it called? And she said, oh, I said, well, uh, pigs at the moment. Um, and so that's how it was pitched. And 
I didn't feel any pressure to make it more sci-fi or more, you know, to sit in that sort of dystopian space that The Stranding sits. However, in writing The Stranding, I had no awareness of how categorize you know how things get categorized in fiction being a massive reader it just had never really I just was not aware of it it's so and I think it's really important for others writers to remember that the majority of the public do not know the classification of the book that they are reading (laughs) like they're not like I love book club fiction they don't what book club fiction is. This is so important. It's really about how publishers sell books and how booksellers sell books and not so much how readers, you know, pick them up and 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 enjoy them. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because with something like speculative fiction, which I guess the stranding falls into yeah, yeah. um loosely, I suppose. <laughs> um that we do often get sort of pelted in the industry by this idea of like you know, um, you know, you stick with a thing because then the re- you'll meet the reader's expectations. But so, was your publisher very um, supportive then of you making a slight shift? Because it isn't, it isn't that it's wildly different. It just doesn't quite fit into that same sort of, you know. No, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's the fact that when I wrote The Stranding, it was coming from a theatrical background. Like my background is as an actor director producer in theater mainly a little bit of short film and in that device is or the way that a device works it's really interesting in a way this it, it's much more imaginative but that's not really true there's more possibility for tricks that mm-hmm. say something you know that's a metaphor for the whole piece and that's what I was aiming for with the stranding. But people are and still do go take it so literally, which is fascinating to me. It is interesting, actually, isn't it? Because I think um, with theatre, it's like when you go into a theatre, there's a whole suspension of disbelief that happens on perhaps a different level to when a person picks up a novel, which, of course, when we pick up a novel, we're doing exactly the same thing. But exactly. we don't perhaps do it in maybe such a conscious way maybe it's something about the space of the theatre and and the collective watching maybe that um but then I think it differs again I mean across genre in many ways and I think the thing maybe for me that I recognize is that I read a lot of literary fiction where in that space it can exist the 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 suspension of disbelief is actually much more prevalent yeah and but my writing is it's it's not commercial you know in the fact that I'm asking someone to believe that someone survived the end of the world by hiding inside a whale but what I'm writing about is quite straightforward because I'm really writing about relationships and and just about the everyday, really, about life experience, um, which a lot of sci-fi authors actually are doing through, uh, uh, you know, more and more I realise that because I haven't really read a huge amount of sci-fi. I did always like dystopian sort of speculative fiction. But I just suppose I, and the authors that I'd read that had done that Mm -hmm. had read 
had written so many other well I mean yeah like Kazuo Ishiguro is a perfect example of someone who shifts genres he has particular concerns as a writer and he shifts genres to tell those stories in different ways he's probably the most famous one who does that but I think plenty have haven't they yeah I mean I mean Margaret Atwood of course is like as well like in my head that's the way that her books are so different each book and 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 also uh, Kate Atkinson I think her books are very different um and so that was my you know coming down sitting down to write that was like oh well this is what writers are allowed to do and I just wasn't really aware of how the market had been had well it hasn't changed it's just that I suppose I'm pushing the boundary of what is literary. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I'm pushing the boundary of what is allowed to be commercial. Yeah. I don't think I'm alone in sitting in that space. I think no, it's a lot of authors sit in, but mine came through pure ignorance, like originally. And now it's somewhere I want to sit because I think at the end of the day, it's about like trying to get as many stories to share with people mm. and you can only do that the way that you can do it and yeah I suppose I could sit down and get out you know save the cat writes a novel and make my life a lot easier and get more books out there <laughs> but I don't know there's something about me that means that I'm going this route where I'm struggling to write something that is still quite commercial <laughs> so yeah. so it's a bit weird I could be That's, writing something I know it's so, it's so interesting isn't it because your books are in no way inaccessible they're just they're just in no way and it's really interesting isn't it I wonder almost how much we all have to do in terms of writers to push back against this idea of constantly being boxed in by people who sell books um, whether that's the publishers or the booksellers themselves. And um, I think, um, but to be fair, I don't think it's the publishers or the booksellers. I think it's the way the books that are sold. I mean, I think the fact that on what is online requires you to sell in a particular way, right? And therefore it passes over to physical bookshops as well, like where things get categorised. I, I, I mean, I do think it's actually an issue it's a capitalist issue yeah. rather than it being <laughs> like it's not anything to do with the art it's absolutely to do with the sales yeah. and I don't even think it's to do with the people that are selling it's just to do with the mode that we have of more and more that's why it didn't really exist maybe even 20 30 years ago the categorization of books or the number of books that are published yeah, I mean, that's another thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, something like a, a genre like YA didn't even t- technically exist, I think, about 20, 25 years ago when I was reading YA the first yeah. time around, <laughs> when I was actually the target audience for it. Um, and and now it is a whole a whole sort of section onto itself, partly because it it's um it's an, it's a way that they make money by categorizing things in a certain way. Exactly. Um, but so let's talk about this family. It has this incredible cast of characters. Um, and it's a family that is in some ways extremely dysfunctional, but in other ways, like the most loving, gorgeous family. And it's set over, the present day is set over 24 hours, but the whole story is over four decades. And I really, I'm so dying to know 
how this story came together in terms of process for you. Where did it begin and how did you piece all of those moving parts together? Because we hear from lots of different perspectives and there isn't a strict chronology either to the backstory. Um, so, I mean, in the most chaotic and non, you know, commercial thinking way possible, really. <laughs> ages. Um, I, so I, as I said, I wrote like a a short play or a, a, yeah, it was a short play of sort of three acts, the, the getting ready for the party, the party and after the party which we get much less of after the party uh, actually now in the novel, but that was the way I wrote it. And that was like working out who the characters were. It was not saying what was going on underneath. It was like all about the surface of what was happening between these characters in the way that we would have, if you came into a party and you saw you, you were this family, you wouldn't get the whole picture. So that was what I started with and then from there I realized I, I knew that I wanted to make it multi-perspective so I started um creating these chapters that were from different people's perspectives which meant on them on the party day mm. which then led me to find the point where we would need to go back into their memories or to explain something about them to find a moment in their past that explains something of their behavior in the present mm. and so that was really just a gut instinct it was like right I'm going to write this from Mary's perspective okay so where what would Mary be thinking about right now mm. <laughs> what point in her past and then I would go and write that explore what happened to Mary on that day in the marketplace mm -hmm. she was first in this town um, and then the next chapter, you know, that would be from Rosie's perspective. And so I'd need something to say about Rosie. And then it starts to build the picture. I mean, much in the same way that I hope the reader discovers what happens. Mm. It was the way that I discovered it. Really uh, Interesting. I was wondering about that because the process of discovery of why the dynamics are the way they are in the present day is a really organic and naturally unfolding thing as you know from the reader's perspective okay. so I was wondering whether that was like a highly curated thing for you or whether it was something that unfolded for you too no it was very much organic and then of course within the editing it became <laughs> a, a nightmare tangle when you had to like <laughs> had to remove a character a whole character and I was like oh wait there so does this become that person part of that person's story or do we just remove that thread then does it still bind together yeah it's really as a knitter it's absolutely like removing <laughs> you know you just lose all of your yeah lose your connections um but that in itself is a sort of more of an organic process and what I love about editing is that that yeah. you have to remove to remove something and then to reinterrogate what you've written and ask, is it important? Yeah. Is it useful? It's just such an exciting process. So yeah, it was organic. And then it was very, very mechanical. And yeah. then it's organic again. Yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful way of describing it. It is editing is such a fascinating process, isn't it? Because it's almost like um you're constantly testing to see whether things are working by yeah. moving, by adding by taking it down to the core really and making sure it still stands up and with such a complex 
it's not a complex story in many ways, but in terms of um, technically it's quite complex because of how many different perspectives and because of the moving around in time. But it doesn't feel complex as a reader. I can just, I was reading it underneath going, oh my goodness, I was trying to imagine your process of piecing that together. I was thinking that was a huge amount of work. That's but it really- part of the fun for me. Yeah. I really yeah. think that so much of the story is in the telling. I, don't you think that's true? I think that's true yeah. of like what I love on TV. Mm. Or even like, you know, like these great love stories that are like some of your, like my favorite things, really. Um, you know, or even like rom coms. It's 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 the it's the framing yeah. that is what thrills me. And so I want to try and achieve that in my work too. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. What what's driving it all and what's driving all the behavior and um and all the reactions. And yeah, it's so it's deeply, deeply satisfying how everything comes together in this family, but deeply satisfying. Um a few of the family members are quite badly behaved <laughs> in this. And I think though it's a testament though to you as a writer that they're all extremely complex. And I still found myself completely falling in love with those characters that, you know, on the surface, very frustrating with some of their behaviour. Michael, the brother-in-law in the book, who sort of, you can sort of, in a way, I, I sort of understood him in some ways the most because he's fallen in love with this family in the same way that I, as a reader, have fallen in love with it and would just be, you know, I would love to be to be lured into that family in a way. And you can totally see why he is lured in. Um, but, yeah, we, I guess that was a challenge, is it, with some of the – I'm not going to give any spoilers away, so sorry for making me sound elusive when I say some bad behaviour. But um, did, was that a, did, that pre- did that present a challenge for you in terms of, like, some of the behaviour of the cast, of, like, um, the cast? It does feel like a cast. Um, <laughs> um, in not – none of them falling too much into being just totally demonized in the book yeah it was that was a like a little bit of like dial turning you know in the in the edit and I do have a I don't know I I have a habit I suppose of thinking about what I'm writing at the moment I like to push it in the first draft I like to make almost them not very human or believable in a way to to make that the villain the villainous quality Mm, yeah like the absolute same you know but then if you can do the same thing within that same character also give them like extreme empathy even though they've done something extremely evil (laughs) or whatever and then if you can find a way to sort of like then bring the dials down it's quite surprising because you can sometimes leave the dial quite high um for certain actions Mm. and have them counterbalance each other Um, and I also think that nearly always there is reason for this bad behavior Mm. that is not really anyone's fault to Mm. a certain extent whether it be because Richard, for example, has does bad there's bad behavior by the father in the family. Mm. Now, one could say that his bad behavior is because basic it could be because of his mother, it could be because of society. I mean, you know, all of these different things. He yeah. certainly isn't entirely sure why he does 
Yeah, yeah, he's he's quite clueless himself, isn't he? Yeah, he doesn't really understand why he does what he does. But his behaviour then has a knock-on effect that makes his children behave really badly. And I suppose that's what I'm really interested in, is this cause and effect. And therefore, can we really say that anybody is to blame? I mean, that more and more with the way that society feels so fractured or the world feels so fractured, I think that's what we've got to come back to is see the cause and effect, Um, not the blame element of it. Like why was that blame? You know, they are to blame, but why are they to blame? Yeah. And I, all, all three of the daughters really do um, react and play out in their lives in very different ways to each other as well, which is really fascinating. Um, yeah, really, really fascinating. And let's talk about Mary for a second, the mother. Yeah. She's really interesting because I, I can see how she could completely be portrayed as a saint. But not only that, is that, you know, there would be a real chance of what she goes through as her coming across as a complete victim, and yet she doesn't at all. There wasn't one point in the book where I felt sorry for her. I did feel angry on her behalf. <laughs> I felt quite angry, but I didn't feel sorry for her. And that to me felt, I think a lot, of, again, a testament to the way that the complexity of how that character is drawn, because I think that would be an easy trap to fall into with her. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. I suppose that it comes down a little bit to what I was like, the, even the very basis of the idea, which was to use that Chekhovian sort of idea to have these archetypal characters obviously they're no longer archetypes but starting in that way that this person is the patriarchy this person is a boomer mother this person is like extremely right wing um this person is left wing to a fault this you know and then thinking about that and how if you put all of those people together in into one space, how they would react to each other. Obviously, all of that has been dialed down and up. But I think at the end of the day, the reason that maybe is so obvious with Mary, which is quite interesting, is the way that people have responded to her. Now, we're of a similar age, and I too feel the same way about Mary, but a lot of uh, some older readers have said, you know, that they... They really feel for Mary. And I've also had people of my age that are like a similar ages to the sisters that have just have really got strong opinions about which one is good and which one is bad. Yeah. Um, Interesting. They, they all differ. And I suppose it's therefore it speaks to experience, right? Yeah. And, and if, yes, there isn't an awful lot to feel sorry for Mary for because there's been albeit she's from a working class background but there has been a huge she's sort of like been relatively protected throughout her life even though there have been bad things have happened to her yeah whereas there's a younger character whom to whom bad things have happened and she hasn't had that sort of layer of cotton wool I don't know there's yeah yeah it's it's um yeah it's really interesting um how how I guess it's really interesting hearing you talk about starting with archetypes and building out from there, because I think one of the layers that I really enjoyed was um, one of the daughters writes a memoir and Mary's not happy with the way she's portrayed. Made me really want to read that memoir, by the way. Great. Actually write her memoir. Um, and I loved that. To me, that felt like um, 
what helped balance Mary out, you know, this idea that she doesn't see herself as a victim and she doesn't like this idea that her daughters think that her life has been pushed uh, by their dad in a certain direction and that she had no control over it and she wants to own the choices she made even though her daughters aren't interested in making similar choices to her. Yeah, 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 Yeah. it's funny, isn't it? I, I just it's funny where those like ideas come from when you're writing and that the best the best writing days are where I just let myself go for it and use the stuff that's like percolating in the back of my mind and the memoir was one of those where I was like it's a bit naughty isn't it really to like to talk about essentially what I'm talking about is like the fact that she's got these opportunities because of her parents you know wealth well not wealth their her parents opportunity connections for her and how that's led on and I was a bit like oh that's a little bit of like me having a bit of a dig and a bit of an (laughs) intro but then it's true isn't it because if it's like something that felt very true yeah you recognize and that you see and that you think oh that feels a bit unfair um then almost definitely that's something that other people would have noticed and thought well that's a bit unfair (laughs) and and, you know (laughs) and, and I think it's things like that it's just like letting yourself that's one of the examples of where I've let myself sort of be quite honest yeah, about my view about the world, but via the different characters. And, you know, my opinion isn't the same as any of theirs, but the thing that I've noticed at the centre of it that they're sort of arguing about mm. is it's sort of, it's a weird, such a weird process. And like, it's really hard to remember that when you're writing, because what you really want to write is, yeah, just something really truthful. And that yeah. means you have to bring yourself to the page, even if it's not in the characters. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your background as an actor and a producer. Um, I'm so deeply fascinated in talking to other writers about, about other careers that they've had, because I think we inevitably bring so much of that with us. Yeah. I think, you know, some of our best writers come from an acting background I think it's not that unusual um which makes complete sense you know it's all it's all about storytelling all of it um so I would love to hear how first of all how that transition happened for you to go from um I know you were writing in theatre and you're writing short films but how what that decision was to to kind of go towards the novel in that different form well I was never um a particularly successful actor I mean I was a I, I was a jobbing actor but I'd never been on the soap. So I'd, I'd been to LA, but I'd never got a pilot. <laughs> you know, the, it felt, uh, and my most successful thing was working with a theatre company that I'm part of the ensemble of, and that was working on classical theatre, but but new sort of, not adaptions, because adaptations, not new because the text was the same, but it's like the vision of it, the yeah. way they staging. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that that filters through because it means that I know like classic texts in a way that most people that it would, other people that would do it would be the people that have worked with the RSC for the lo- a long, long time. Um, you know, and then they probably would be, wouldn't be looking for another <laughs> career path. Um, or maybe they would, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that's something that's quite interesting. I think that definitely filters into the work. But my, the reason I 
started doing it was because I was I was producing as well. So I did a bit of producing for that ensemble, the faction. I did some producing for myself just because I was like interested in where um community and storytelling sort of meet. And I did some work in Brockwell Park when I lived there. I'm sort of always looking to try and like connect with my community. It's just something in me as well. But that those producing skills, I quickly realized when someone asked me to come and help on an events thing. Um, she was working for an events company and she said, Oh, I need some help. And I started doing it. And I was like, oh, it's this is exactly the same skill set, but there's a lot more money available you can earn a lot more money and so I started doing that because I'd also worked in restaurants and I'd had a health food shop where I'd managed the food like the kitchen of it so yeah I I was doing that um working in events really doing a little bit of film production because I was still trying to develop my storytelling and more and more the film stuff they didn't want me as an actor. They wanted my writing or that was the bit that they were trying to push forwards. Um, and I suppose that was where I started to recognise that maybe the writing had something, um, which was exciting. Um, but I was trying to get, I mean, I always come back to this, which is a bit like too much information, but it's the truth of the matter is it was because I was trying to get pregnant. Mm. So in my mid-30s, I realized that I still hadn't met a partner that I wanted to, I did want to have a family and that just the speed of things sort of really <laughs> ratcheted up um, and I decided after lots of investigation to attempt um, to get pregnant by a sp- sperm donor um, that required a lot of money it meant I had to really think well I was I did a lot more events work because I was trying to save up for that um, And that was really when I just started writing a little bit more on my own. But one of the reasons was one of those contracts fell through when I was like, oh, my fourth round of trying to get pregnant. Um, And I'd had these short scripts of different films and stuff. And I was trying to work out like what I was going to do next. And it was my mum actually who sort of like, really like sat me down and said just think about what you want to do like stop saying oh nothing's working think about what you actually want to do mm-hmm. I'd always wanted to I hadn't been to university I went to drama school but I hadn't done anything it is quite academic actually drama school but it's not seen as such um in fact the drama school I went to just two years later that became a a degree but at the time it was a diploma same course but you know recognized um and so I started to I so I, I contacted UEA um, and different um universities but it was UEA that I was particularly interested in because it was near my parents and I thought well if I get pregnant I'd have some support um and I got in by writing the first 4,000 words of what turned out to be the stranding mm-hmm. Uh, and then during that time that I was pregnant, actually, <laughs> I continued to write um, to try and just to try and finish it. They'd encouraged me to keep writing, keep writing, I said, so you'll have something to work on when you come. But I contacted an agent friend who I'd met 
on a meditation retreat <laughs> um, and said, would you mind having a look at this for me and seeing if you think it's worth sending out or what you suggest? Because I got into UEA, blah, blah, blah. And she got back to me like within 24 hours and said, you should send it out, get it out to agents now. It was already complete before you even went to. I hadn't finished it actually when I sent it to when I sent it to my friend. I hadn't finished it. I had two chapters and she wanted to see the rest of it. You okay. know, she wanted to see, she wanted to see the full. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. So I sat down and wrote, wrote the last two chapters. I think I said, I'll get it to you by the weekend. <gasps> and I wrote the last two chapters and she said to send it out to other people, um, partly because of our relationship, like or you know, being already there. Um and because of it's not the sort of stuff that she represents. Um, yeah. And I sent it out and I got that an amazing response. So I had an agent by the time I had my daughter. Um and right. then I had a book deal three months later. So that's amazing. Because I was gonna ask you about the timeline of that because I had wondered whether or not your choice to become a parent at that point had been the, one of the things that helped, that decided you to shift more towards writing it's certainly my own parental responsibilities <laughs> has been a huge influence on the fact that I've switched from being a photographer to being a writer because I literally just with my son's needs I just can't be out of the house in the way that I could be years ago even when he was young and I just had more support and his needs weren't as high as they are now um and so it has been a massive factor. And I think that we need to talk about that, that these, these are the kind of things that influence our careers. And it's not that I would never have wanted to be a writer. I'm thrilled to be writing. It's great. Yeah. I love it. I always wanted to do it. But it definitely has been a factor in terms of it, I, needed, I needed to do something that meant that I was going to be available to my son. Yeah, it definitely was part of like a, a change of, gear in my life like there's absolutely no way that I could do what I used to do I mean it's still a juggle like don't get me wrong like I'm still juggling financially very much so like particularly as I'm well not just particularly as I'm single but I'm single parent so it's only it's only my income that is to um consider um but I used to, if money was, you know, I've always had a job here, a job there and all of this stuff. And um, around acting, I would often be producing or, like I said, I had a, a health food shop for a long period of time where I'd also be acting. And when I was in New York, I would often be doing the payroll in the morning and then writing a blog post and, and you know, updating the online shop and then going to auditions, classes in New York. So it was always, there was always a huge juggle going on. But I could not go out and get a waitress shift at the last minute. Um, Just, yeah, the requirements of me are different. And that's not to say that writing is easy to find time for. No. (laughs) You're the, the, you know, solo carer of a small child. I remember someone saying to me when I was pregnant, actually, because I told them about the book and they're like, oh yes, writing would be a good job with a, with a kid. <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if it is a good job with a kid in many respects. Oh, but- I know. I feel quite torn about that as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's something I can, I can achieve in the house. Yes. But in other ways, 
like you, I've always, you know, I'm a kind of consummate creative freelancer. It's been my entire career as well. Um, and obviously once you become a carer to somebody else, especially when you're a sole carer to somebody else, um, there's just there's just a lot less options for how you can earn a living. Um, and in some ways it is writing is great. Um, but the fact that writers are not particularly well remunerated for their work um, <laughs> doesn't help. Yeah. And, and it is time. It's sort of like creative ideas. I have loads of them. Time is much less. Um, and, and like I've already said, like my creative process, certainly for writing a novel, <laughs> is not linear. And to be honest, it's not for other creative things I'm I am working as I mentioned I like to get involved in the community and so I'm working with Berry Literary Festival now that sounds quite fancy but it's not really because it it was started by a group uh, basically a book club in Berry's Netherlands and I'm the first sort of like interloper into that <laughs> circle coming with my like events production experience but also obviously my literary knowledge and contacts of the of the area which actually in some ways clashes with what they view how they view mm. literature it's quite interesting um because like you said the people picking up the books in the shop don't really know what the whole sort of industry looks like it's a different perception and you know there's there's a little bit of fundraising there to help secure my post and all of those sorts of things. But then it's just like finding the time yeah. to do that alongside the writing, to give everything your biggest energy. And that's part of the reason for the podcast is that that is something that I can do around. Yes. Me. Whereas going, that is something I can do around my daughter, which is, harder to go out <laughs> to places to do events I mean I don't know maybe when she gets a bit older it might be a bit easier but maybe not who knows yeah, I know it's really difficult to tell but let's talk about your podcast and novel experience for a moment now as well because I really want to chat to you about that what was was that it was that part of what was driving you to start it was this idea of like I want to be having these conversations and I can't be going to all these events that happen because of my commitments is that was that one of the driving forces behind it it was one of but partly it's it was mainly the conversations um and if I'm honest the original I'd sort of thought about it previously but my publicist I wouldn't say pushed me, but really <laughs> strongly encouraged me to just try doing at least, just try doing six episodes, just try doing six episodes. Um, And then it's a double thing now for me. And then as it went on, I realized that actually it is a brand forming thing as mm. well. It is connections that on a personal level, help me feel mm. like having the conversations that I do with different authors some of whom I wouldn't get in the room with because of commitments being yeah. in Anglia all of that stuff I don't I do occasionally go to book parties but also they're not the best places to have conversations <laughs> no, really. um, so yeah it's sort of like it feels like a bit of a support system but it does also feel like 
something that you can that I can do from home mostly on my phone Mm. um, that builds some sort of an awareness of me as an author as well because I'm only on my second novel I do write I'm not writing massively commercial novels and so by making those connections and maybe meeting those readers of the authors that I'm interviewing maybe that would cause some interest in my work as well so it's like it's a bit of a patchwork of reasoning behind it and I have to say that sometimes when it's taking such a huge amount of time because it does take a lot of time a lot of time listeners (laughs) well this isn't financially you know beneficial (laughs) so is it definitely is it like weighing it up? Is it definitely beneficial in the other ways? And and to this point, I think so, yes. Yeah. Like as far as, and the main one really is that working through the ideas behind writing. Yeah. And well, reading actually really widely. That's what also yeah. helps. But also just making connections with other authors and talking about like how how weird this is that we do this. <laughs> no, you know I I mean one of the things that drove me to do it was very much that um, after years of not writing anything particularly and just shooting, I wasn't quite ready to tell other people that I was writing again. Um, and so I listen to podcasts to make me feel not alone as a writer. Yeah. Like I'm not completely mental for doing this yeah. because if you think about it on the surface, I'm sure there'll be lots of listeners who have felt this at times. It is a bit of a mad thing to do to just sit down and put your words down, not knowing what's going to happen with them yeah. to create these entire worlds on page on the page and then just, um, and, and live in these other worlds. And sometimes you just need to know that you're not the only mad person out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I too. And I, I tell you where I found them really helpful and listened to a lot of podcasts was on that run up to being published. Yeah. Particularly because it was lockdown. I mean, I got my deal yeah. before <laughs> lockdown and then um, it continued to be lockdown really until my book came out and then it was locked down again. But, you know, um, that that whole period where I was excited to like become part of the industry yeah. uh, to meet people to under to try and understand I'm always trying to understand like how things work and I was trying to understand how yeah publishing worked and it really helped and it made me feel much less alone and, and I sort of hope that maybe the podcast if it does that for a few people yeah I mean you know, it's got a really nice li- listenership now, and I've had a couple of events that I could do where I've like hosted live events, and that has been really, really enjoyable too. And you know, does bring in a tiny bit of money, and yeah. that makes a huge difference as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, this family is out now. Everyone. I actually listened on audio. This is the again the beauty of having a bit of a break because obviously yeah. usually I have to read proofs if I'm going to speak to someone before the book is coming out. But this this season I've been able to listen to someone audio because it's post publication. It is it's an excellent it's an excellent narration. I really really oh love it. yeah I really like the um who re- the the actor that read it. It was yeah. it was a no you know there was no there was no option for her. Just yeah, like when, when I heard the audition. 
Beautiful. Yeah, it's really, it's a really, I'm, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I'm very picky about narration and she is, yeah, fabulous. Sorry, um, my cat just joined us then. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Penny. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you.